You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Zephaniah beginning in chapter 2, verse 4. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Carathites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. 
I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. This is God's word. Father, this book contains some vivid and bleak and disturbing pictures. Lord, we look forward to next week when we see a beautiful picture of salvation. But today, as we see this hard word, Lord, help us to understand it comes from you, that it's true, that it's beneficial for us to hear. Lord, help us to consider our society and the way that you see it. And help us to think about what you would have us do in light of these truths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When nations suffer or undergo hard times or disasters, is that a sign of God's judgment? Well, most of us probably have no problem believing that God brought down the most infamously evil empires of history, Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union, the Roman Empire. And most of us probably have no, no problem with the idea that God might judge the countries in our world that act in the same way today, like China or North Korea or Iran. But national judgment becomes a more controversial idea when we consider disasters that befall less obviously evil countries. Bangladesh has terrible floods all the time. Is that God's judgment? The wildfires ravaging Canada and Greece, is that God's judgment? Was the Haitian earthquake of 2010 God's judgment? Televangelist Pat Robertson said it was, and his words were widely condemned. National judgment becomes an even more controversial idea when disasters strike closer to home. Some public Christian leaders said 9-11 was God's judgment upon this country's openness to abortion and homosexuality. Just as in 2005, they suggested that Hurricane Katrina was God's judgment upon the sin of New Orleans. These statements inspired tremendous backlash, both inside and outside the church. How should we think about these kinds of claims and the disasters that inspired them? Should Christians believe that when bad times come for a country, that is a sign of national judgment, or should we not? Does the Bible speak about these matters with any clarity? Well, it does. And today, as we continue our study in Zephaniah, we come to a passage that gives us an opportunity to consider this controversial subject and to form an, a theology of national judgment to help us think and talk about these matters in biblically accurate ways. And so that's what we're going to strive to do today in Zephaniah 2.4 through 3.8. And today I have three points. First, God judges the nations. Second, God judges his own people. And third, God faithfully saves a remnant. We begin with our first point. 
God judges the nations. Zephaniah's theme is the day of the Lord, that time when God will intervene in this world to finally settle his accounts, bringing judgment and ultimate salvation. And we said last week that there will be one ultimate day of the Lord at the end of history. But the Old Testament also anticipates smaller, more local days of the Lord across history when God brings justice on particular nations. And in Zephaniah 2, we see four such local outbursts of God's wrath prophesied. We find the first in Zephaniah chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Carathites! The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. The first nation God condemns is Philistia. The Philistines were originally from Crete, which is what this word Carathites means in verse 5. And they settled along the Mediterranean coast west of Israel. And they became Israel's persistent enemies. Now, Philistine power was concentrated in five cities, four of which are named here, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron. And here God says judgment is coming on the Philistines. And when it comes, it'll happen fast. He says you'll be driven out at noon. This indicates rapid defeat. And the result will be Philistia's extinction. Look at verse 6. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. Philistine society was built on trade, but their version of Wall Street will soon be reduced to empty grazing land for sheep. Their buildings will be abandoned, ultimately possessed by the Jews. And why will this judgment fall? Well, verse 5 speaks of the Philistines occupying Canaan, the land that God gave Israel. This land was supposed to belong to God's people, but it's been stolen. God will judge that and give his people what he had promised. Now comes a second condemnation. Look at verse 8. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. We're probably not very familiar with the nations of Ammon and Moab. These countries were east of Israel across the Jordan River, and they had many things in common. Uh, they were both descended from the sexual immorality of Lot, the nephew of Abraham. They both worshipped an idol that demanded the sacrifice of human children. And although they were related to the Israelites historically, they were consistently Israel's enemies. And so they are judged. Here, because they mock and revile God's people. Moab's arrogance was infamous. Isaiah 16, 6, listen to this. We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence. In his idle boasting, he is not right. I think Isaiah is trying to say something about Moab there, every way you could talk about pride. Moab talked a lot of trash but they couldn't back it up. They were greater in their own estimate than they were in reality. 
Ammon also tried to exalt itself at Israel's expense. In 1 Samuel 11, an Ammonite king tried to assert dominance over Israel by gouging out one eye from every Israelite living in a border town. In 2 Samuel 10, another Ammonite king humiliated Israelite diplomats by stripping them naked and shaving half their beards off. These countries persistently disrespected Israel and Israel's borders. Amos 1.13 condemns Ammon for ripping open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. That's terrorism. Murdering mothers and the unborn to drive Israelites from their home and steal their lands. Zephaniah suggests this kind of disrespect of Israel's borders continued in his day. And so judgment falls. Look at verse 9. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. God takes an oath. He swears by his own existence, the surest thing there is, that these countries will be destroyed utterly, like Sodom and Gomorrah, who God obliterated from the map in Genesis 19. Because Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction. And because God always has his people's back. He stands up for us, and he will avenge everyone who persecutes and mocks his people. So Ammon and Moab shall fall and their territory will be taken by God's people. We come now to the third condemnation. Look at verse 12. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. Not much is said here as God speaks against Cush, also known as Nubia. Nubia was far to the south of Israel. Today it would be in South Sudan. And we might think, well, this seems really out of place because the rest of this chapter talks about countries near Israel. Cush was at the edge of the known world. But I think that's the point. God's judgment doesn't just fall on Israel's neighbors. It falls on every nation, those near and those far away. Now, no sin of Cush is recorded here, but every government and every society rebels against the Lord, and they will all be held to account. Finally, we come to the fourth condemnation. Look at verse 13. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. Now God turns to the north, to the most powerful nation then on earth, Assyria. Assyria's might was unmatched, and it used that might to conquer many nations and enslave many people. Assyria was aggressive and expansionistic. They were also very cruel. If you ever have the opportunity to see Assyrian art from this period, don't, because it's filled with depictions of horrific torture. That's what they loved to think about. 
And as they considered their power, Assyria thought they were safe. They were beyond accountability. That they were like God. They said in their hearts what only God can say. I am and there is no one else. But God is not impressed. Remember the Titanic's builder boasted, not even God can sink this ship? How'd that turn out? So it also will be for Assyria. God says it will be reduced to a wasteland, its luxurious houses destroyed, its crowded streets overrun by wild animals. This nation that terrified the world will become a ruin that people will scoff at as they pass by. Now, what do we learn from all of these verses? God judges the nations. This is a common theme in the prophetic books. About one out of every seven verses in the Old Testament prophets talks about God bringing judgment on Gentile nations like we read here. So this adds up to being a pretty significant chunk of the Bible, a part we probably don't spend much time thinking about. What do passages like this teach us? Well, first, God is interested not just in what his people are up to, but what is going on in the whole world. And God impartially judges the whole world. He judges nations in every direction, north, south, east, and west. He speaks against nations near Israel and far away. He speaks against mighty nations and weak nations. Friend, God judges every country. And so we should expect that God is evaluating our country as well. Second, we need to know that God means what he says. Here God says he's going to destroy the strongest nation on earth, Assyria. And within a decade of Zephaniah writing these words, Assyria fell into a stunning decline. Within 25 years, its capital, Nineveh, was destroyed. Three years later, it was off the map. So absolute was Assyria's destruction that two centuries later, Greek historians wrote, saying they had no idea where the capital city, Nineveh, was located because even its ruins were gone, covered by dirt for 2,400 years. God said Assyria would be left desolate, and it happened. God also says he's going to destroy Philistia. About 30 years after Zephaniah wrote these words, in 604 BC, the Babylonian Empire wiped Philistia off the map. Its vacated buildings sat empty for centuries, but they were later taken and inhabited by the Jews during the Maccabean period, as Zephaniah prophesied. God said Philistia would be left desolate, and it happened. In this passage, God says he will obliterate Moab and Ammon. They survived until the late Persian Empire, around 350 BC, when they were overrun by Arab tribes. They were left as vacant, desolate lands filled with ruins. Later, the Jewish Maccabean kingdom would expand into these areas and build cities and palaces there, which is probably the fulfillment of verse 9. But God said Ammon and Moab would be destroyed, and it happened. In this passage, God says he's going to destroy Cush. Cush survived for centuries, but in Anno Domini 350, it fell. God said Cush would be judged, and though it took a thousand years, it happened. See, God always fulfills his word, including his word of judgment. We'll talk about that more later. But we need to know now God means what he says and makes good on his word. Third, 
we need to know why God judges nations. Now, this is the Old Testament, and so when we think about sin in the Old Testament, we usually think about the Old Testament law and it being violated. But that is not why God says he judges the Gentile nations here or in any of the other prophetic books. God cites the law when he judges Israel and Judah because he gave them his law. But God did not judge the Gentiles against the law. He doesn't condemn them for breaking it. Instead, the prophets consistently give us three reasons why God judges the Gentile nations. First, for mistreating his people. Countries that persecute God's people or even just mock them fall under God's wrath. We see that here about Israel in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, that would be Christians. Remember when Paul was persecuting Christians in Acts 9? And Jesus appeared to him and said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. See, nations that mock or persecute Christians mock or persecute Jesus himself and fall under God's judgment. A second reason God judges nations is for violating his general revelation. Romans 1.20 says, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. See, nature puts all the world on notice about God's reality, and yet the nations worshipped idols. More than that, the nations did things that were unnaturally evil. Friends, it's not hard to figure out that we shouldn't tear open pregnant women like the Ammonites did, or commit mass murder like the Assyrians did. But countries do these evil things, and God judges them for it. Particularly, God singles out unnatural violence as a reason for judging the nations. When you read all of the passages in the prophets about the, the judgment of the nations, what you'll find is that violence is the second most often cited reason why judgment falls. Either allowing violence within a society or doing violence against other countries. That provokes God's anger. The third reason God judges the nations is for their pride. Now, national pride is something we probably don't think is that bad. Every society boasts in itself. Britain is proud of its history. China is proud of its economy. North Korea is proud of its nukes. France is proud of just about everything. But so is America. We're proud of our might and our economy and our pop culture and our freedom. And we might say, well, what's wrong with being proud about that? What's Zephaniah say? Ammon and Moab are judged because they thought they were the greatest. Assyria was judged because it thought it was so mighty that it had become unaccountable. Friends, God hates pride. Proverbs 6 lists six sins that God hates, and first on the list is pride. So it shouldn't surprise us that pride is the number one most often cited reason in the prophets why God judges nations. Now, what is pride? It's exalting ourselves, imagining we are the source of the good things we enjoy, that we are blessed because of our own excellencies and efforts. I remember about 10 years ago when I was first studying this subject in the prophets, after I did my Bible study, I went down to watch the presidential debate, and there was a candidate talking, and he was explaining the reasons why America was prospering. 
And he said, well, our system of government is great and our economic system is wonderful and we have all of this freedom and ingenuity and our own greatness. And he never praised God for any of it. It was all about us being great. Friends, that's pride. To be clear, there's nothing wrong with being thankful for the good things that we enjoy as a country or loving our country or being glad for it. But friends, whatever good we enjoy comes from God. We've got to boast in God alone and not in ourselves. And we dare not look down on others. Because whatever goodness we have is not a reflection of our own excellence. It is a kindness from God alone. And if we forget that and want to boast in ourselves, friends, let us remember Assyria. They were so powerful and so boastful and so sure of themselves, and within 20 years, they were non-existent. Because as Jesus says in Luke 14, all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. So what endangers a country before God? Pride, tolerating violence in society, acting violently towards other societies, disrespecting and persecuting his people, tolerating things contrary to nature, and in a few minutes, chapter 3 will add to this the exploitation of the most vulnerable in society. And friends, I think if we're honest, we will admit all of these things characterize our society. There is much mockery of God today, is there not? Is there not increasing opposition to Christ and his word? Have we not tolerated violence against the unborn in our society? Every day, do we not see another mass shooting somewhere? Have we not prosecuted many foreign wars? Have we not celebrated many unnatural things, sexual acts and unnatural gender transitions? Have we not had much national pride? And friends, I want to tell you our society does tolerate the exploitation of the vulnerable. Has our church not recently seen how young children without parents can be terribly wronged by the system? or consider the homeless and elderly who are perishing in the heat wave, or crime victims who get no justice. Friends, I've heard horrible stories about immigrants being exploited by their own lawyers in the legal system for a few bucks. The things God most judges nations for characterize our society. Now this brings me to the fourth takeaway from these verses. What does national judgment look like? I'm not gonna read all the references here. If you're interested, I have them for you. But the prophets indicate national judgment can involve a number of things. Here is a sample of things the prophets describe as how God judges a country. Natural disaster, economic distress, a reduction of national influence, civil unrest, terror, installing pathetic leadership for a nation, military defeat, and as we see in this chapter, total destruction. Does this not sound like the nightly news? Now, am I saying we are under judgment as a country? Well, Zephaniah says every nation is under judgment. The day of the Lord is coming on the whole world. The final verse of our passage today is going to say every nation will have God's indignation poured on them. And that would include us. So yes, we should expect periodic outbursts of judgment on our nation. And that someday our nation will end like Assyria and these others did. Maybe that will happen when Jesus returns. Maybe much sooner. But God's judgment will fall. So we should not be surprised when the things I just read about happen here or elsewhere. 
But this leads to the last thing we need to know, which is how we should think and talk about national judgment. National judgment is a biblical truth, but unfortunately it's often co-opted by Christian leaders who are more interested in advancing a political or cultural agenda than advancing the gospel. Please understand today, this talk about national judgment is not a call to political activism because the solution is not found at the ballot box. Okay, the application I want you to take today is not, let's get all those leaders out of office that we dislike, and let's get some leaders in there who curry favor with evangelicals. Because friends, politics is not a means of national deliverance. Psalm 146.3 says, do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. Blessed are those whose hope is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. So if you want to be spared national judgment, I certainly do, the answer is not through politicians. It's not through winning elections. It's through repentance. Jeremiah 18, 7, God says, If any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. Friends, repentance doesn't mean we win an election. It doesn't mean Christians rise up and seize the political levers of power. No, national repentance begins with personal repentance. We need to humble ourselves and repent of pride individually and nationally. We need to love other people as we love ourselves. Yes, we should advocate against wrongs that offend God. But let us also care for the vulnerable. James 1.27 says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And friends, let us not just look to repent ourselves. Let us point others to Jesus, our neighbors and coworkers and friends. Let us tell them where sin leads, not just to national death, but to individual eternal death. Let us tell them there is salvation available because of the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That is how our community and nation are going to change, one conversion at a time. So the Bible teaches us about national judgment. The solution is personal repentance and evangelism. A few final thoughts about this. Friends, let us never discuss disaster in a callous way. Oh, those dirty sinners over there deserved it. Friends, we all deserve judgment. Let us never make arrogant pronouncements that transcend the limits of what we can truly know. We are not prophets. It's not for us to say, this judgment fell on that place because of this sin. Zephaniah was inspired by God to say that we aren't. Now, yes, when disasters happen, we should remember the truth that God does use such things to bring judgment. Amos 3.6 says, when disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? But consider another lesson that we learned from Jesus in Luke 13. There were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. 
Something bad happens. We don't look at that and say, well, God killed the guilty and he spared the innocent. Jesus says that's not how it works. Disasters happen because this is a sinful world and God's judgment stands against it. But disasters also accomplish another purpose. They remind us the day of the Lord is coming for us all. When we see disaster, the right question to ask is, if that happened to me, would I be ready to meet the Lord for judgment? To ask others, are you ready? Because disasters and judgments all point to the truth that the great day of the Lord is coming. And we will all stand before Jesus for judgment. And if we don't repent and flee to Jesus in faith on that day, we will surely perish. We come now to our second point, and it's much shorter. God judges his people. Imagine Zephaniah saying these words to his audience. Boy, they must have gotten really excited. Their ancient enemies, Moab and Ammon and Philistia, were going to be destroyed. That would sound like great news. And then he says Assyria is going to get it. Well, Assyria had invaded Judah less than a century earlier and enslaved thousands of their neighbors. Boy, the audience would have been even more overjoyed to hear that news. Zephaniah has his crowd right where he wants them. They have his, he has their undivided attention as he now drops the hammer on them because he's got one more judgment to describe. He starts subtly. Look at three, chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. Now, at first, this might sound like he's still talking about Assyria and its capital, Nineveh. But verse 2 makes it clear he isn't. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. There's only one country on earth at that time that called Yahweh her God. It was Judah. And her capital was Jerusalem. Jerusalem had God's word. But they held it in such low regard, they had misplaced the book of the law. They had lost the Bible until King Josiah cleansed the temple when it was rediscovered. But even without the scriptures, God sent his prophets, yet the people didn't listen because they didn't believe God. When they heard things they didn't like, they'd ignore it like it wasn't real. Instead of drawing near to God, Jerusalem drifted from him. So verse 1 declares Jerusalem guilty. It's so evil, it could be confused with Nineveh or any other wicked city. Jerusalem is rebellious because it's defied the Lord. It's defiled because it's polluted by sin. And what sins have polluted Jerusalem? Well, last week we talked about nominalism and idolatry. Here a different sin is in focus. Zephaniah uses the word oppressing. This describes the mistreatment of the most powerless people in Jewish society. Widows, orphans, and foreigners who lived among the Israelites. God did not look kindly on this exploitation. Jeremiah 22.3, Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness. Deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. If you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, this house shall become a desolation. God warned his people against exploiting the powerless. But the exploitation continued financially and even resorting to murder. We know that because this word defiled in verse 1 is usually used to describe guiltiness connected to murder. And who is responsible for this criminality? God names the culprits. It's society's leaders. Look at verse 3. 
Her officials within her are roaring lions. Politicians are feeding on the flesh of their followers, hoping to devour more. Verse 3, her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Deuteronomy 1 told the judges to judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and great alike. But these judges exploited and destroyed the lives of powerless people to glean whatever tiny profit they could take. Verse 4, her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. The prophets were supposed to speak God's word to urge the people's loyalty to God. But these false prophets were themselves disloyal to God. The same word translated fickle here appears in Jeremiah 23, 32, which speaks about false prophets bringing lying dreams and false visions that God did not really inspire. I think that's the disloyalty here. People are speaking words in God's name that he did not stand behind. Verse 4, her priests profane what is holy, they do violence to the law. The priests represented people to God and presided over worship through sacrifice. And their involvement was necessary because God is holy, and so the sacrificial laws were complex to protect the holiness of the worship. But here Zephaniah says the priests are unholy, so the worship is tainted so people can't meet with God at the temple. Corrupt leaders are destroying God's people. And notice God equates some of these leaders with animals. In chapter 2, when animals overran a nation, that was a sign of God's judgment. Now we learn Jerusalem has already been overrun by animals. That is, God is judging Jerusalem by giving the people over to corrupt leaders. But while the leaders are defiled, look at verse 5. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. In Jerusalem was the temple where God uniquely manifested his presence on earth. See, God was Jerusalem's true king, and he is the essence of righteousness. Unlike the defiled priest, he is holy, holy, holy. Unlike the lying prophets, he always speaks the truth. Unlike the corrupt judges, he does what's right. Unlike the predatory politicians, he takes care of the needy. Morning by morning, he is good and faithful because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But this does not just form a contrast with the leaders of Jerusalem. This also teaches a lesson. Because God is always the same, that means his past actions teach us what he will do in the future, because he doesn't change. But Judah failed to learn the lessons that God meant history to teach them. Chapter 3, verse 6. I have cut off nations, their battlements are in ruins. I've laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. God had judged nations before. He judged Egypt with the plagues. He judged the Canaanites in Joshua's conquest. A century earlier, he had judged the ten northern tribes of Israel, allowing them to be taken away as slaves. God had showed he would judge nations before, leaving behind only desolation. And these events were meant to teach God's people that he will judge the unrepentant. Look at verse 7. I said, surely you will fear me and you will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. 
but all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. God meant his people to think about what they had seen and what their history was and say, God will judge sin. And he wanted them to learn from that. We should fear him and repent so he won't judge us. But instead of learning that lesson, Jerusalem eagerly doubled down on their sin. So there's only one possible outcome. Look at verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Instead of maintaining the holiness God required of his people, Jerusalem wanted to be like the world. So they've got to share the fate of the other nations, and they will. We saw that back in chapter 1, God's judgment will come on them as it comes upon all the unrepentant. Now, how should we apply this? Well, let me start by saying how we should not apply it. We may see many parallels between the corrupt leaders of Jerusalem and corruption in our society. But we do not want to make the mistake many people today are making of saying the United States today stands in the same position Israel stood in back in Old Testament times. This theory is part of a number of odd and false movements like Mormonism, Christian nationalism, Christian identity, British Israelism, theonomy, dominionism, the client nation doctrine, and many other such false doctrines. These ideas are profoundly mistaken. Israel in the Old Testament had a unique position before God. Romans 9, 4 says, To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the worship, the promises, and the patriarchs. Friends, none of that's true about the United States. We are not God's elect nation. We do not have a covenant with God. We have no promise that God will regather us if he destroys us like he gave Israel. If we want to understand how God deals with America, let's look back to our first point about how God deals with Gentile nations. But as God deals with Israel here, how should we apply this text? Well, I think we've got to ask, who today is in a similar position to Israel in the Old Testament? Who are the people of God today? And the answer is the church. Now, of course, the church is not the same as Israel. We're not a country. We're not under the Old Covenant. But we are the group God is using to make him known today. So what should the church and individual believers learn from this passage? First, leadership really matters. It matters in the church and it matters in our homes. God here judges Jerusalem for the sins of the leaders. Why? Because when leaders go bad, followers do too. Before Zephaniah's day, all of the kings that had reigned for about 100 years had been idolaters. Zephaniah 1.4 says that trickled down to the people. The people became idolaters like their kings. We just read about how the politicians were unjust and oppressive. Zephaniah 1.9 says that trickled down to the people. They became violent fraudsters like their leaders. See, the leaders' sin defiled the people. I think we see this today in the American church. As we have platformed Christian leaders more interested in money and power than the gospel. And in turn, Christians have internalized the idea that the gospel is secondary and that what really matters is me having material prosperity and national politics. Friends, that's a defilement. God's people need good leaders. This church needs good elders and deacons, and our homes need good husbands and parents so that we aren't defiled by sin. Now, what does good leadership look like? Not what we read about here. It's not self-serving. 
It's not advantaging ourselves at the expense of the people we lead. That's what the world does. Godly leadership is selfless. It follows Jesus' example. Matthew 20, verse 26. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus served us. He put our interests above his own. He sacrificed all for us. He endured the horrors of the cross and the very wrath of God. And that is the high standard Christian leaders are called to emulate. And if we strive to follow it, he will use us to draw people to himself. But where we say, I want to do something different, and I want it to be all about me, disaster will follow. Proverbs 29.2 says, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. Friend, if you have responsibilities here or in your home, how do you view them? You're always looking for an angle. How do I make this easier for myself? How do I dodge sacrifice and responsibility and making hard choices? How can I get somebody else to clean up the mess I should be cleaning up? How do I make others serve me? And that is worldliness that will lead to ruin. Instead, friends, we need to ask, how do those I'm leading see me? What good am I trying to produce in them? What sacrifice am I willing to endure to make it happen? Second, and I think we've already alluded to this, we've got to care for the weak and needy around us. The sickly, the widow, the orphan, the new person at church, the immigrant, the refugee, the crime victim, the homeless person. As we encounter such people, let us do our best to help them because God defends the weak. And God's people, we should imitate our Lord and we should help and care for them too. Finally here, we need to know that God again made good on his word. Judgment did come for Jerusalem. Between 605 and 586 BC, three times God brought the Babylonians against Jerusalem. They enslaved thousands. Ultimately, they destroyed the city and killed its remaining inhabitants, and the few survivors were scattered. Judah claimed to belong to God, but it behaved like the world. So it was judged with the world, just like Zephaniah said. Friends, God is always faithful to his word, including his word of judgment. Now today, many people don't think hell is real. Or if it's real, the only person there will be Hitler, right? But Jesus says in Matthew 7, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. We've got to learn the lesson Judah didn't learn. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he did in the past, he will do in the future. In the past, he promised to bring judgments and he did. So when he says the unrepentant will go into hell, we should believe him that he will make good on that word. We've got to take his warning seriously. We need to repent and cast ourselves on his mercy because his fury really is coming. We see that now in our last point, which is that God faithfully saves a remnant. And we've seen a lot of judgment the last two weeks, have we not? But today we get a bit of hope. We'll see a lot more next week. But, but look at chapter 3, verse 8. God says, therefore, wait for me. He just said he was going to judge Jerusalem. Now he says, wait for me. Who's he talking to? Well, certainly not the people that will be judged. They've got nothing to wait for but destruction. No, God says there are people in Jerusalem who are upset about what is happening around them, who desire God to save them from the moral disaster their nation has become, who hunger for national repentance and personal righteousness. 
These are people described in chapter 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. There are people who have turned away from the sins that were destroying their nation, who have trusted God and confessed their need for His grace, who have sought refuge in Him. And to these people, God says, wait, because He's going to do something. And when He did, it was really something. We talked about this last week. God brought about an amazing revival under King Josiah. 22 years of national righteousness, of biblical leadership. It was a glorious time. And God made good on his promise of Jeremiah 18, that when a country repents, he withholds destruction. During that period, judgment was deferred. But when Josiah died in 609 BC, the nation went right back to its evil. And so God brought judgment. Now, what happened to this faithful remnant of believers during that judgment? They suffered. See, when God's judgment falls on a place, usually his people suffer alongside the unrighteous. When a plague hits a city, it's not like everyone dies but the Christians. When war comes, it's not like the unbelievers die but the believers escape with their fortunes intact. No. When judgment came, everyone in Jerusalem experienced terrible things, believing and unbelieving alike. Now, maybe you hear that and say, why should I trust God then? Because God made a promise to his remnant. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. Yes, the remnant will lose what they had, as everyone did when Jerusalem fell. But God promised to restore the fortunes of believers. Unbelievers didn't have that promise. But this promise didn't work the way we might expect. We might read this and think, oh, well, then the remnant will live to see their fortunes restored. They didn't. They were taken to Babylon as slaves, and the Jews stayed there for decades. The people taken never got to go back to the promised land. They died in captivity. So this promise was not a promise of personal restoration to prosperity in this life. No, it worked in a different way. It worked on two levels. First, it was a promise for the future of the Jewish people after their nation was destroyed. Babylon took them away, but when Babylon fell, they got to go home. And they were reestablished there. And under the Maccabees, they regained political independence. And God fulfilled the promises of chapter 2, verses 7 and 9. They did inhabit the lands of Philistia and Moab and Ammon. You might say, yeah, but, but the individuals who believed God's word, they didn't live to see that. that that's true. But though we may not live to see God fulfill all of his promises in this life, that doesn't mean God's word failed. Speaking of Old Testament believers, Hebrews 11:13 says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. That's how this promise worked for the remnant. They died trusting God would make good on his promise to restore them because God is the God of resurrection. And in the resurrection, those who believe in Zephaniah's message, and those today who believe the gospel will enjoy restoration. We will rise to eternal life and enjoy a far better situation than anything in this world. That is how God fulfills his promise to believers. Friends, God always brings his word to pass. And we can know that future blessing will happen because God has already begun to make good on his promises of restoration. In Zephaniah's day, the prophets had already said the Messiah was going to come. Isaiah 7 says he's Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 9 says he's a human king who will also be God. 
Isaiah 53 says he would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And in the fullness of time, God indeed sent forth his son Jesus, the Messiah, fully God and fully man, who died on the cross to deliver his people from God's wrath. He has risen victoriously from the dead to win salvation for believing Jews, like Zephaniah's audience, but also for a larger group. Look at chapter 2, verse 11 of our passage. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth. And to him shall bow down each in its place, all the lands of the nations. See, the remnant God is going to save isn't Jewish only. Friends, God will draw people in from even the Gentiles. All who believe in Jesus now, before the day of the Lord comes, we will be spared when wrath falls in the end. Revelation 5 says God has drawn people from every tribe and nation and language and people group to believe in Jesus to be part of the people for his own possession. Friends, the church is one body made up of many equal members, whether we are Gentile or Jew, man or woman, rich or poor. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And today if we belong to Jesus, no matter our background, we have a citizenship in heaven, we're promised a new country, the new Jerusalem, and we're promised eternal life in the endless bliss of the presence of God forever. Revelation 7, we read this earlier, says, I looked and behold a great multitude no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the God who saves this group is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same God who made good on his promises in Zephaniah, his promises of judgment. So we can trust he will also make good on his word of salvation to all who seek refuge in him. Friends, there is a true and reliable way to be spared from the wrath that is coming. Jesus is returning, and he will bring judgment. But if we repent and believe the gospel, if we humble ourselves, and turn from the sin that is leading us to hell. If we cast ourselves on the mercy of Jesus, because he is God and man, because he died for our sins and rose again, we will be saved. But today, if you do know Jesus already, I implore you, stop trusting the things of this world. Our lives may be disrupted by terrible events that happen to our country and world, because God's judgment is real. Know that trusting God does not guarantee us a difficulty-free life. So don't clutch the things of this world which are passing away. Stop trusting politicians and judges to fix things. Trust Jesus. And if you really want things to turn around, friends, it's got to start with you and me. We've got to get serious about the things of the Lord. We need to repent of the sin that so easily besets us. We need to point other people to Jesus because he is our only hope. And we've got to maintain our faith no matter what befalls us. Because even though judgment is coming on this world, God is faithful to his word. And he will make good on the promise of Hebrews 7.25. He will save us to the uttermost.